Uh, and he's also just written a really, really excellent book on three quarters of the way through it, um, which you'll probably mention a bit about in your talk, I should imagine. So I, I won't say any more, and I'll let you. Since I've written that book, I've forgotten what I wrote, and I can't remember whether what I'm talking about tonight is actually sort of covered in it. But <laughs> what one's thinking just moves on, and the, the book was a very nice project to work on. And it's set all sorts of hairs running in my thinking, and I'm still sort of working on some of these things. But uh, I come back to what I think is a fundamental truth, and I want to sort of just put this particular idea before you, because I think all sorts of things work out from that. But Pilate asked the key question, and we read Pilate's key question, um, but we sometimes don't stop and ponder on it. So Pilate said... What is truth? Um, and, and we might not even notice the fact that he probably turned on his heels and left at that point. He didn't even hang around for the answer. Um, what is truth? So if we're to try and understand the significance of the conversation, we just need to look at the, the setting. Pilate had said to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. So this is a kingdom with a difference. So Pilate seeks clarification. He says, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say I'm a king. Because Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He didn't go around saying, I'm the king. You say I'm a king. Um... And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate said, what is truth? And walked away. Now Jesus already told his disciples, as well, we know so well in John 14, the conversation with Thomas, you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, uh, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in binding those things all together, <laughs> you know, the, the whole direction of our lives, the experience of life, the emotions and the feelings and the intellectual understanding of it are all captured and caught up in the person of Jesus. Jesus embodies the truth. And the kingdom of God is all about truth. And truth is the central concern. Jesus spoke truthfully, lived truthfully, and following Jesus... Truth is our motivation in travel. It's the direction of our travel and it's our ultimate destination. We are called to pursue truth and there is no higher priority. It should be our consuming passion. Listen to the prophet Zechariah. Um, God said... I've purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. And render in your gates judgments that are true. 
and make for peace. And do not despise, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So God hates falsity and he loves truth. Truth in our speech, in our thinking, in our purposes, in our integrity. It is our primary agenda. And as we look at, I mean, we don't need to look very far. Just look across what's happening in America now. The two wonderful superstars that are put up. And one of them is going to be president. Mm-hmm. You know, the lies, the half-truths, the deceptions, the wickedness that is being exposed there. That's what this world relishes in. And, it, you know, if all seems to be sweetness and light, scratch the surface and you see the hideous underlying character. And then listen to Paul at the end of his life, writing to the Philippians, probably 62 AD, whether he lived whether he died that year or the next year or whether he got to Spain we don't know those things finally brothers he says in that letter whatever things are true whatever's noble whatever's right whatever's pure whatever's lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or worthy of praise think about such things and whatever you've learned from me put it into practice And truth is something that has to be put into practice. It's got to be worked out in our character, in our homes, in our relationships. Um, In relationship with the bank and our finances and in every other area. Truth is to be pursued, researched, learned, understood, spoken and practised. But the question then remains, how do we know what is true? And this is something I've tried to tackle in the book at some length. Outside mathematics and the strict confines of logic, all our truth is provisional. And that includes our theological knowledge and our scientific knowledge. There's a much more rigid attitude to science 50, 60 years ago, that science has the truth. Now there's a new humility abroad in science. We realise, well... It's not quite as simple as that. Uh, there's corruption in science. There's, uh, there are false results. There are misleading ideas. There are ideas that seem very good and then run into the sand. Scientific theories get overthrown. So in this life, we never know anything with ultimate certainty. Now we see in a mirror dimly. And then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part... Then, Paul says, looking ahead, we shall ultimately know fully. So we pursue truth, we investigate it, we delineate truth, we tease out untruth. But ultimately we hold on to truth tentatively. And this includes our knowledge of God. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We are committed to that truth. But we cannot be 100% certain about it. Perhaps they might find the body of Jesus and we're all shown to be wrong. We have to have a proper humility about truth. And so the prayer, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we have our convictions which we carry and our doubts which nag. And they ebb and flow fascinatingly as life goes on. 
And sometimes things can seem so clear, so true, so obvious. And sometimes you can be in a slough of despondency and it's just difficult to cling on to anything. Um, so our grasp of truth is a fluctuating thing. I thought my father was George May. All my life he'd been George May. And I took, when he died, I took his papers to the solicitor and asked him if he would handle the estate of George May. Oh, certainly, yes. Um, the evidence of George May is actually right behind me. There's a cigarette box. It says, presented to Lieutenant G.W. May on the of 4th Battalion of the Buffs by his brother officers on the occasion of his marriage, 6th of March, 1943. A couple of years before I was born. I'll just point that out. <laughs> Um, so he asked for the bank statements and I gave the solicitor the bank statements and he said <coughs> um, a birth certificate, so I rummaged around here, birth certificate have you ever seen this? Mm -hmm. pushed it across to me my father's name was George William Israel and he never told me isn't that extraordinary? I mean, if I could be confident about any truth, and you know, it's my, it's my, my dad's George May. Everyone calls him George May, and evidently he, he wasn't George May, and he, in a wartime situation, clearly didn't need to. They weren't prepared to go into details. He didn't have to. He couldn't prove it or, or whatever, and he got permission to marry under the name of May, and therefore I'm legally May, but he never was. <laughs> It's of no great concept. Actually, I'm rather sad, really, about that that happened. This would be quite an exciting name to have. But presumably, our ancestors decided it was bad for business, I imagine, which is why they changed it. They were known as May. And his father was known as May, George Henry May. And I think his father similarly. So uh, when it, well, it never, it wasn't legally changed until I came along. So some things that we think we hold with great confidence... We can be quite surprised. Uh, Justin Welby, of course, had this shock about his father. It wasn't even his father. At least I'm fairly confident that George was my dad. <laughs> we live in, uh, and there's quite a nice discussion of this in uh, Alison McGrath's book on inventing the universe, about living in the now. And what a funny thing the now is. The now is what makes sense of our lives. And yet it's, you can't get hold of it, can you? It's, gone, it's not only gone the moment it's there, but even by the time we appreciate uh, a moment in the now, it's already historic. You picking your cheek by the time I've got, got through to my brain, uh, you've taken your hand away almost well my brain. No, my brain isn't that slow. <laughs> but there's a time lag. Um, so all the truth that we have is all historic truth. And that depends on how good our memories are retaining the things that happen, how good we've made contemporary notes at the time and written things down. Uh, so the number of people here in this room, if it's not written down tonight, we'll never get it right another day. Uh, oh, about 40 people there, or whatever. Um, you know, so, so truth is like that. We're always looking back to find something that's documented, and that's why we have to research it, and we research it as carefully as we can and um, <coughs> correct things to the best we can. But it's always tentative. It's always provisional in the, the way we um, grasp it. 
Did you know this meeting was going to take place tonight? You didn't. Because if I'd forgotten and gone out and we left the door shut, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> or if Naomi had just gave you all the wrong dates. You know, you set out in faith that this meeting was going to happen. Um, but you didn't know it. You walked in faith on the basis of good evidence, if name is reliable, uh, or, or perhaps you checked with somebody else. And um, you had reasonable grounds to set out and hopefully uh, adequately rewarded to find uh, so many good friends here. But that is the nature of the way we handle faith we, uh, and handle truth. We act on it, but we do so with not 100% confidence. The question then is how we are persuaded about truth, and this is a big theme in the book, um, because truth, it's a bit like a, a, a seesaw. Um, I happier times with grandchildren on a seesaw, and you get several of them at that end, and then eventually you get more weight on, and it begins to, just begins to lift up, and then it goes down the other way. Now, being persuaded is a bit like that. You get told some truths, you stack it up and say, yeah, okay, I'm prepared to go back. But you're not persuaded. Just being told things isn't in itself persuasive. When the balance of probability shifts, so when you set out the balance of probabilities tonight that this meeting would take place, clearly the probabilities were fairly plain that this was going to happen. It was worth setting out. Um, but if you'd only heard it from one person, say, oh, I think it's tonight, and I think it's somewhere or other, you probably, you know, you'd have been quite uncertain about it. So we know truth, never finally, but just on the balance of the probabilities. This is most probably true. There is a case that could be argued probably against it being true. Uh, a persuasive person might have shifted. You can't possibly... No, no good thing ever happens in Westridge Road. And anyway, there was a murder in Westridge Road recently, recently. You know, nobody's going to wander down that road. You know, you could make out a case to sort of suppose that this isn't, isn't true. Um, but we conclude, we, we are persuaded by the probabilities of truth. Now, there's one or two other things that I think need to be said about truth. Uh, and one is, is that truth doesn't contradict itself. If a thing is true, it's true. We may only know it provisionally to be true. Um, but truth itself won't contradict truth. Other truths might come in and declare a, tr a truth a falsehood. Um, but that's a different matter. Truth ultimately hangs together. And, and is one. Um, so, uh, and, and the point of saying that is that I think sometimes, uh, we were just having a conversation a, a moment ago, some of the things that Christians disagree about. Um, there are also things Christians disagree about. Uh, no two of us totally agree with anyone else about everything. <laughs> we all have our strengths and weaknesses and the things that, 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 we, um, that we, we, we're concerned about. Um, but in terms of truth itself, we can relax if we're pursuing truth. We're not going to run into a truth that is a threat or a danger to... Oh, I mean, it might be a danger to the truth that somebody's coming in with a gun. Um, but intellectually, spiritually, we should never be threatened by truth. So in talking about these issues of Genesis, which we were sort of chatting about, we might say, well, there are several views here. 
And, but that shouldn't greatly concern us. I'm, we're fellow travellers to try and understand what the truth is. And the issues that one person might consider at one stage are different from the issues another person might consider. Um, and that's fine. We can pursue, we can continue pursuing truth. Truth is always on our side if we're following Christ. He's told us to pursue truth. Um, the question is uh, trying to understand it and be clear about it and to work out the implications of it. And there are lots of things that uh, scientists will run into apparent difficulties and the age of the earth and this sort of thing is one that a lot of people are so adamant that it's a young earth. Um, it seems to me the evidence is very heavily weighted the other way. Um, so in terms of my persuasion, I think this is an old earth. Um, but that's fine. If other people have a different view, we can have a humility to our own understanding, a tolerance of other people's views, and we can discuss and tease out, well, what's important here? What are the issues? And who knows, along the way, we'll change our mind, and our views do change as we progress and we see things in different perspectives. So... You will find in your field particular issues. I've found in my field particular issues. Claims to healing have been a big issue for me. Um, the claims of miracles. Uh, the claims of alternative therapies. Um, and I've been motivated to work on those things and to try and uh, sort out truth from error and um, upset a few people along the way for doing it. Currently there's a great turmoil in society about sexuality. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to upset people at the moment, have any view on sexuality. Um, but we have to have a view on sexuality. And Christians are called to work out the implications of, of God's truth. For me, this brought me into conflict with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. A friend and I challenged them about their statement on sexuality. They said that people are born with an orientation. This is just three years ago. They had a statement on their website saying that people are born with an orientation which is innate and cannot be changed. So we wrote and said that isn't true. Um, lots of people change, and um, it isn't just to do orientation. Isn't just to do with your genetics and the gay the, the gay gene isn't there. Uh, it's got a lot to do with people's experience. Uh, um, they would not even discuss it with us. So it's not that they said, oh, that's interesting, well, you haven't you know, given us other information. To... They just did not reply. So we wrote again. And eventually we reported the officers of the college, the president and the registrar and the chief writer of the Professor King, who wrote the paper on the, their website, we reported them to the General Medical Council. The General Medical Council sat on it for about nine months and did nothing. They wrote to us eventually saying, we understand what you're saying, but we don't feel, since none of them would be struck off for what they've said, we're not prepared to investigate it any further. Yeah, so we not only live in this sort of world where people are seeking for truth and understanding, but Christians have, a, and we particularly with the concern of science, have a particular methodological approach to trying to understand knowledge, and we have a responsibility to help other people to understand knowledge, and it will mean that we have to stand up and be counted. And uh, that 
I think is going to get more difficult for Christians in the next generation than it has been in the last. Because for the last, what, 1,700 years, there has been this sort of general consensus in the Western world that Christianity is true and Christians are tolerated. We have part, you may have noticed this, we have passed that point now. That is no longer the case. And uh, the, the implications, I think, will be, will be very difficult. Um, in all sorts of ways. You've only got to listen to what um, Mrs. Clinton said this week about... um, She she likened Christian views on same-sex marriage to female genital mutilation, burning of widows. I forget what the third one. She had three illustrations of things... uh, (coughs) You know, grotesque things derived, and said all these things derived. This is where religious views get you. <laughs> the gloves are off, and this is why people are going to vote for Trump, of course, in the states, <laughs> despite the appalling the, the things that he says. They're totally, you know, the Christians anyway are really very perplexed as to how you do all this. So, j- j- just finally, um, so if we think that. Um, Pursuing truth is going to be straightforward. Uh, There should be a government health warning with truth. Um, And one of the things I've been fascinated reading in the New Testament, mulling over, is just the way Christianity got off the ground initially. And I think we now know, at least I'm, I'm confident myself that Christ died in 33 AD. There's a lovely new, newish book on that subject which goes into the arguments and just knocks them for six that it could be at any other year other than 33 AD. It looks as though the Jews kept the thing entirely to themselves for probably eight years prior to Antioch where we're told that now the Gentiles were becoming Christians. And that would have been about 44 AD, something like that. And yet five years after that, Paul in Thessalonica, remember this wonderful passage, um, which uh, when you first read it, you can't, can't forget it really. The Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed into Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Uh, But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, and they've now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house, and they're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. 49 A.D., That is the same year that Suetonius says the Jews were kicked out of Rome because of riots and disturbances at the instigation of somebody called Crestus. It's generally conceded this was a spelling mistake. He meant Christus. 49 AD. And they're saying all over the world, absolute uproar. Now, in the Roman world, which of course was wonderfully unchristian in every department of his life, um, and of course, the persecutions followed r- relentlessly. It was, uh, it was the next three hundred years were a nightmare till the emperor was converted. 
And then, okay, you're going to have Christianity. And then they start making hospitals. And they start doing all sorts of other things that are overtly Christian. They can get away with it. So we don't know we're born, really. We've had a cushy number for a long time. And it's changing. And unless the gospel reignites uh, in Western culture, we're going to find the next uh, generation, or you will find it. I'll, I'll, I'm moving on. <laughs> I've got my ticket. <laughs> um, it, it is going to be... A very rough ride, I think, until, once again, Christ is honoured uh, and, and brings everyone back to truth and integrity and love and compassion. <coughs> so it is to that end that this group set up, because we're going to need mutual encouragement. We need to be able to share ideas. We need to be able to talk things through. We need to pray for one another. We need to know when a colleague is down and under the cosh and, and having a rough time. Um, and we need to support one another and get in the habit of doing that now because it's going to be all the more necessary into the future. That's enough. Thank you, Peter. That's great. I've got a question. Oh, I, mean, I was hoping that we got the truth issue sorted. <laughs> Just to kick us off. So the internet, it's a, um, I think one of the most bewildering things about the internet is there's just so many views. Everyone has a voice. Um, and it's often said that people tend to gravitate towards people who are saying the same things as them. And that explains a lot about why people like Donald Trump has, have risen to power. Um, and yet people would still say that the internet is a great kind of context for bringing up truth and democracy and, and that kind of thing. Have you any reflections on whether the internet's a good or bad thing with regards to discovering truth? <laughs> because it, it, it is a fascinating generation that we live in. There's no other generation has had to do this apart from 500 years ago when they invented the printing press. <laughs> and look how truth was set loose with the printing mm. press. So I think the good side of this is phenomenal. I mean, I, Peter Williams and I write things like Peter and I've got a couple dozen articles up there, and um, <coughs> each year I sort of ask them, you know, how many hits am I getting? What's getting read and what's not, not worth, you know, just to get keep a feel for the thing. And it's, it goes up. It's been running now since 2004. It goes up sort of five, ten percent a year, and so. I, off last year and they sent in our figures. I imagine. Hold on, these are 60% up on last year. He said that's true across the board with the thinking. Really? That's great. Now that, I think, is a very interesting sign of spring, really. Um, something has happened in that. So, so, you know, now articles that might have been published and put in a magazine are lost within three weeks, um, now uh, up, uh, and things that I wrote ten years ago are still having 10,000 hits a year. Mm -hmm. uh, my, this year, from the figures last year, my own two dozen articles should be on 100,000 hits this year. So, you know, we, it's terribly difficult to sort of quantify this and uh, to understand what's going on, and of course, presumably there's people all over the world who are seeing it. So, which is wonderful in the sort of high fees 
world of what's you know, linking up Christian groups. So the positive side of it is clearly there. I think we've got to be disciplined about what, how we use it personally. I, I, I do think the pornography thing is very bad news for the church because it's so addictive. And I think lots of Christians are just finding themselves, you know, they run into problems, emotional problems, and a click of a button, they can find, oh, la la, and they're carried away in wonderfully attractive, utterly deceptive, and morally degrading uh, pornography. So that, I mean, that's a real problem. Uh, even when you're trying to research something quite separate, things come up and links are made and, uh, and all the rest of it. And I, and I do think the point that you're making, that people log on to their like-minded groups. I'm on two or three groups on Facebook. It's very easy to find a group to say the sort of things you like to hear and interested in your sort of things. Uh, we do need to you also use the internet to see the other views and to see what the atheists are saying and what the Roman Catholics are saying and what the um, other political parties are saying and, and so forth. Um, otherwise you can be very deceived and live in a false world. But I mean, my, my wife's a pessimist, you see, she'll look at anything and, and, and see the bad side of it. I'm a, always an optimist. I always see the positive side, and I think of the internet. I think the positive is terribly frightening. Great. Any other questions? We were having a brief discussion uh, about uh, one of the points that you made about knowledge, uh, and the question was: so, so would you say we don't know anything? Or do we say we, we do know things, but knowledge doesn't require being 100% certain yeah. of, yeah. of not you know, yeah. to know? You might want to sort of use knowledge in italics as, do I really know in that sort of 100% certain mathematical way? Yeah. But the rest of the time, it still makes sense to claim that we know things, even though we're not, you know, we could be wrong. Kind of yes, it, it makes sense. And we test the knowledge we get, and we get encouraged that, yeah, okay, these people are reliable, and this is a real world, and so forth. But um, the Chinese philosopher who said that uh, if, when I'm asleep, I believe I'm a butterfly, mm. how do I know when I'm awake I'm not a butterfly believing I'm a man? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if a clear answer to that. <laughs> You know, there is, and, and you know, in medicine, you know, we see people go completely barking. Mm. <laughs> uh, absolutely psychotic. So, mental illness is a reality. And you can't sit down and talk to these people and say, oh no, it isn't true. Uh, they have their mm. hallucination. Um, so, we have provisos on all our knowledge. Yeah. yeah. But, but, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> if we didn't know anything, uh, we wouldn't even have a supper tonight, would we? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just wondering, um, certainly as a as a younger, sort of, I don't know, as a young student or as a young person going into the workplace, sometimes it's quite difficult to um, to talk to older people about um, truth when truth is sort of often given with authority when it's an older person, you know, giving a lecture. It's assumed that they're they're right and you, if you if you believe something different, you're not. Mm -hmm. Have you have you ever had an experience with that? And what would you? 
Well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the answer here is that I've written quite a lot in the book on this. You must better ask a question and make an assertion. Why do you think that? Well, why shouldn't I? Well, I just wondered because of this area, for instance, you know, and going in that way with questions. So that puts them on the foot. Otherwise, there will be confrontation if you say, uh, but this is true, it's like rubbish. You're an idiot. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Questions, questions, the whole time. It's, it's, it's the only way we get, get through to people, really. Uh, yeah, um, sort of linked to that, um, that most people believe that what they themselves believe is the truth, and to them it's the truth. Uh, and nowadays quite a few people are happy to say, well, that's your truth, and this yeah. is my truth, yeah. and then let's just agree to disagree. Um, how do you approach talking to people like that? Uh, it's on the scale of persuasion, can you? With, with, with great difficulty, uh, uh, because usually the relativist doesn't realise quite what, what's happening to them. And years ago I got into a radio debate about the resurrection with Barbara Smoker, who was president of the other humanist association, the, the other organisation was an atheist organisation, and about the resurrection, I thought it was great. And she started off, she, I spoke first, and she said on the radio, well, I really agree with Dr. Mayer about this, that, that, that this is either true or it's false. Um, <laughs> and I thought, that's great, that's a really positive step. We are now into antithetical thoughts, but the opposite, two opposite, <laughs> are not the same thing. So we then discussed about whether it was true or whether it was false. And we stayed in antithesis throughout the discussion for half an hour till the final comments. And in the final comments, she's, uh, we got onto the judgment, which I thought was a very helpful thing to be on because that is either true or it's false. You are either going to face the judgment or you're not. And she finished up saying, well, I'm really sorry for you for believing that. It won't happen to me because I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> So right at the end, her relativism came through, and you know, <laughs> it would have taken hours. Well, that was the end of the show, folks. <laughs> but it would have taken a long time to try and unpick that. So I think people who are relativists, they, they, they move in and out of it. They're never a relativist when they cross the road. They're never a relativist when they take their medicine. Um, you know, we, we, they do believe there is a real world there. But they've been sucked into this delusion that, well, you have your truth and I have mine, and they're all equally, equally valid, aren't they? So you can't, you can't again, asking questions, you can unpick some of that sometimes mm -hmm. with people. You can ask them why they think that. Yes, uh, I, I get it. Back to the questions. I think it's the only way to go forward, really. And otherwise, you just make an assertion. It's the well, that's what I'm saying. You know, you have your views, I have mine. You know. So you've got to somehow just dig away at it. And, uh, how do you justify that? Do you, do you think it's possible you can believe that and the opposite of the same? Mm. It's surprising how often it does live in a scientist's mind as well, relativism. You won't be relativistic about your subject, but as soon as you get beyond that um, ethics or yeah. religion, it becomes yeah. very um, very different from, from anything yeah. scientists. We, we can blame mid, mid to early 20th century Oxford philosophy for a lot of this, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. A lot of this goes back to the 
the theory of knowledge that, that says basically you can, you can know things that are true by definition or that you can empirically prove, sort of scientifically, but anything outside of those borders, assuming you can define that, it is just relativistic, true for you, or for, you know, it's subjective. Um, so, um, you know, the moon is made of cheese is a silly statement, but it's a statement that's either true or false, because you know how to empirically test it. Yeah. Um, but if I say the moon is beautiful tonight, you can't empirically test that, yeah. and therefore it's just subjective. If I say torturing small children for fun is evil, you can't empirically determine that. And so it's just subjective. Um, and that's got applied to religion as well in early 20th century philosophy. So that kind of subjectivism about sort of metaphysical, philosophical claims about ethics and aesthetics and, and so on, and religious claims, actually stems from a commitment, a sort of over-commitment to a scientific way of knowing that says science is the only way of knowing. Uh, and so you need to, one way of countering that, which is why this sort of movement, particularly spearheaded by A.J. Eyre from Oxford, collapsed pretty soon after it was launched, is that philosophers noticed that the view didn't meet its own criteria. If you say, you know, the only way to know things is through science, you say, well, how did you scientifically know that? <laughs> And then you realise, oh, that wasn't something, I, that was just a, a philosophical claim, not a scientific one, and so it's self-contradictory and can't be true. Um, so science is a way of knowing certain things, not the way of knowing all things. So there are other ways of knowing other things, like moral claims and aesthetic claims and religious claims and so on. So um, that, that, that's why you often find that kind of subjectivism going along with a a very scientistic frame of mind uh, because it's, a, it's an overcommitment to what science can do. Other disciplines have much more problem than we do. I mean, some people's view of history is entirely mm. relative. But history is what well, I think history is. Mm. Uh, they, they really seem sucked into that. Well, they could never get away with that in the science discipline. Yeah. So, so we're sort of semi-protected. But I do get the impression that Relativism has passed its peak. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it sort of hit its peak in the nineties. Yeah, there's much less, you know, certainly in the in the newspapers, and you wouldn't yeah. get away with outrageous relativistic sentences, which yeah. like, twenty years ago people were getting away with. Has apathy just replaced it? Sorry, has, has, has apathy, apathy replaced it? There is that. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah, whatever is. <laughs> Um, I, I, I always found that in, um, in secondary school that there was a big impact of, well, I guess just a lack of teaching on things like, um, well, things like relative, relativistic ideas or um, about um, just basic critical thinking that would mm. allow people to challenge um, their assumptions on science and theology and, and philosophy and so um, <coughs> I, I guess you also see that in when you do things like 
you know, text to toast here, things like that, where you're speaking to fellow university students and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe what the Bible says or something. Like they might just, you know, <clears throat> some people even just laugh at you. Um, so I guess the question I, I'd ask is, how do you how do you think we could, I don't know, how Christians influence the schools to encourage them to teach good philosophy? I think sometimes that being a, a, a Christian student, and particularly sort of a postgrad, uh, can be a double job because you've got to play within the rules of your system and know what they sort of answers are acceptable in your academia, but you've also got to be able to critique it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, you need to be very bright to play that game, and I think most people mm -hmm. just sort of muddle along, just trying to keep their head above water, and uh, it's very difficult as a student to, to challenge these things. So I'd be interested to ask of all the students here, does any of the, do any of the courses that you're on teach anything about history of science or philosophy of science? Has anybody actually done anything on Which course are you on? Um, archaeology, so we go through kind of the history of discipline and how, or in, in various aspects of it, um, the history of discipline and its kind of foundation and that kind of thing. I think that's quite unusual because that would answer your question, that if it was taught as part of your science degree, something about the philosophy of science and the history of science. But lots of these issues come up all the time in all the disciplines. Mm -hmm. I don't think the university, as far as I know, doesn't teach anything on this. I think underlying the way we were taught um, any sort of theology, it would be in RE lessons and it would kind of be like, well, yes, these are all these religions, they believe in the nativity and we do dramas. And, but then, when you speak to people, they underline it as a kind of assumption. Oh well, Jesus didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was no, there was you know, none of this. These are all just stories. So mm -hmm. There's an underlying philosophy that we're taught in school, mm -hmm. and perhaps Tom Wright has just written on this subject and challenging the school curriculum mm. that the only way you can learn about Jesus as a subset of one of the religions in a religious studies class. Otherwise, the most important person in human history is not discussed and taught in the history syllabus. Which, you know, I mean, it's outrageous. And yet we've allowed this to happen. Where's he written that? Church in a newspaper last week had a... Spiel on it, and um, um, knowing what I know about Tom, I imagine he'll bang on about this one because this is a, you know, it's such a glare. Once you, once it's pointed out to you, mm -hmm. it's true. Yeah. <laughs> the most important person in Western civilization is not taught about in the history classes. Uh, what's that about? Um, so watch the space. And, uh, <coughs> but as, as soon as you can see that Jesus is a historical figure, you have to engage with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> mm. at that at that point, you, you 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 have to come to terms with the fact that he died, and then deal with the question of did he rise again or not. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, I think that's why you can't. <laughs> I mean, it's too dangerous. 
to discuss him within the history syllabus. Oh, you can well realise why they didn't want to touch it, but I mean, it is, it is absolutely absurd that that is the case. They should find ways to say, okay, we won't discuss. Christians believe he, he died for our sins and was raised again. But park that, let's look at his teaching. Let's look at his character. Do you think his attitude to children was right? His attitude to women? What's his attitude to women? Let's look at that. Any last question? Yeah, Michael. Should we be putting, you know, as, as scientists, you know, we want to know as much as possible the facts, should we be putting much effort into persuading other Christians about issues, that, that the secondary issues? Or should we take a more relativist approach and just say, you believe that and we believe this? <laughs> So, what issues are you particularly thinking so, of? So, any kind of secondary issue, like creation evolution, why not? If not all part, but you know, it's, it's not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation it, issue. Um, it becomes an issue if uh, that view is, the, the different views are excluded. I mean, I've been tentatively talking with a book supplier today who do not touch. You know, anyone who believes in the, uh, an old earth. You know, so my book's not being carried on their stock because I talk about cosmology. Now, you know, that sort of censorship that becomes sort of a fraught issue, really. You know, I think we've got to be tolerant of each other's views. And we've got to try and help one another to think it through. But we're all ultimately answerable to our own faithfulness to Christ. Because um, a lot of these view, different viewpoints don't actually alter the way we live. But if this is an old earth or a young earth, I don't think I would live my life any differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there is, I mean, we do, you're right though, we are, we're not to be relativistic. Um, the secondary primary issue thing is recognising that these questions, which we call secondary issues, are simply secondary to the fact of our unity and the importance of maintaining that unity. But that doesn't mean they should yeah. be censored among us. And we should try, as Paul said, to be of one mind and to arrive at one mind um, on those things. The problem is, is often we let those things become defining and we kind of split off from one another <laughs> before we have the opportunity to even talk about that and become of one mind. But I think Paul says is that, Paul's saying that Community is the context for arriving and working towards agreement over these issues. Not to kind of just push them away and shove them into the carpet. And the issues that are primary are primary, and the issues that are secondary are secondary. Yeah, that's right. We can't afford to just muddle along and disagree and say, well, I really don't see it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.